Last week, we, we left off with, um, uh, we were considering, considering the identity and the origin of um, these, the, the Magoi, the, the wise men. Uh, we speculated, um, and we always think that our own speculation is correct, correct? That, there, that there's some connection to the prophet Daniel uh, in the Old Testament. And uh, we talked about how when they came and the things they were inquiring about, because they were mysterious, they were exotic, uh, they had created a messianic stir in Jerusalem, uh, so much so that even Herod himself was troubled by the news. And then uh, he actually invited them to the citadel uh, to discuss uh, what was going on. And, uh, and he learned from them that uh, there was more to this than just a king. It was it had to do with the stars. It had to do with worship and, and, and gifts and all of that. And then we briefly looked at Micah 5.2, the prophecy which not only predicts the, the, the place of birth for Messiah, uh, but it also describes to us his eternal nature, his eternal nature. The child who was to be born in Bethlehem, the text says he would be from of old, from everlasting. Uh, and as we've discussed since the beginning of this, that uh, he would be the eternal God who would be born in the flesh to be the savior of men. Uh, God manifest in the flesh, Paul says. And the first section of Matthew 2, uh, we know, ended with the wise men being warned in a dream, uh, do not return to Herod. Do not return to Herod. And so they found a, another way uh, to, to go home. And then it's at, I think that in that place in the text, we get the impression that Herod uh, was not a good guy. Something's up, right? Something's wrong. And uh, so we pick things up in verse 13, uh, where our suspicions will continue to grow, and they'll, of course, be confirmed in verse 16 with tragedy. So let's go ahead and read our text this morning. We are going to finish the chapter. How many of you guys are in, um, uh, is it the BSF? Isn't it Bible Study Fellowship? Who's, who's all in that? You're, you're doing it too? Do you know what's going on, Gabe? Oh, Bible study fell. Isn't that what it's called? Aren't you guys in Matthew also in Bible study fell? Okay. Um, where are you guys right now? Oh, you're you're cruising, chapter four. Okay. Well, I'm not going to be able to catch up with you guys. But uh, anyway, well, if if you are able, please please stand for the reading of of God's word. Matthew chapter two verses thirteen through sixteen or through twenty three. I'll be reading out of the New King James version. Now, when they had departed. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, 
Take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. And, and we know, Lord, that history is important. And Lord Jesus, you are the Christ of history. So I pray, Lord, that the historical account, the details, that all of this would come together for us in our hearts. We'd understand better who you are, your origins, your glory, your wonder. So Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll be seated, please. Let's go back to verse 13. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. So they, of course, refers to the wise men who were, were warned initially in the dream uh, to, to, to not return to Herod, verse 12. You remember he had said, uh, go find the child, uh, and then come back to me because I want to go worship him with you. Yeah. But Joseph uh, was told to get out of Bethlehem and go, of all places, go to Egypt with his little family because he says Herod will try to destroy the child. Now at this time, because of the way that, because of all that Herod reigned over, uh, they couldn't flee to another region or district. They had to actually flee all the way out of uh, Herod's jurisdiction. And Herod didn't actually have good relations with Egypt. And so Egypt was the best place. Uh, and it was the most convenient place at the time uh, to flee. To stay there, the angel said, until I bring you word that things are safe. Now, I think that um, uh, by the wise men evading Herod and him waiting and waiting, it would give uh, more time to Joseph and his family uh, to evade uh, what was actually coming, give them a head start to cross the border and get out of Herod's jurisdiction. So that was providential. But now, Jesus, of course, is an enemy of the state. He's a fugitive, and as soon as he crosses that border, he's a refugee, right? He's a refugee. Uh, not quite the start you would think that the Son of God would get on planet Earth. Very strange. Okay? But then, as we had talked about last week, um, the gifts that were offered by the wise men would provide them uh, for however long they needed to be uh, in Egypt. And so another provision of God. Verse 14 through 15. So when he, Joseph, arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Called out of Egypt. It fulfills the prophecy of Hosea 11, verse 1. It's, it's quoted there in verse 15 by Matthew. Now, there's two of the prophecies that um, Matthew is going to, to quote in this chapter are very interesting prophecies. And uh, so I think that we could probably spend the day talking about both this one and the one from Jeremiah. And I'm not sure that's uh, the, what I want to do because I want to keep going on with the story because I don't think that God wants us to get caught up in all of that. He wants us to to uh, keep track of Jesus, because it's about Jesus, right? 
Say amen. Okay, all right, good. Matthew uh, appears to use Israel as a type of Christ, uh, looking back to this prophecy, that by Israel originally going down to Egypt in Genesis and then being called out of Egypt in the Exodus was prefiguring, was prefiguring what would happen in the life of God's son when he would call him out of Egypt to return to Israel. And then also something to consider uh, and, and I think this is going to be for your own study, but when Israel, the, the very people group from which the Messiah would emerge, uh, as they were preserved and they were rescued from Egypt, in a very real sense, the Messiah came out of Egypt with them. For if they had not been preserved, as God promised that he would preserve them, and if they had not been rescued out of bondage, we would have no Messiah to come out of Egypt. You understand? There would be no Messiah at all. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. No surprise that Herod would be angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he determined from the wise men. So Herod discovered that the wise men, they were on to him, okay, on to him. And the time for him was running out okay, to take any kind of effective action to secure his throne from what we would call a messianic revolt. Okay, that's what this is all about. So according to the time determined by the wise men, uh, as, as far as the approximate time the child was born, Herod leaves himself a wide margin, a sad wide margin, just to be sure he had all the male children, the text says, two years old and under in Bethlehem. And then it says in the the area around it, the micro-communities, those babies were killed. Now, uh, I don't know what you learned in Sunday school in regard to this text or what tradition you may have come from. Uh, some have stated, I've heard it many times, I've seen it in some commentaries, that there were countless babies that were murdered during this time. Uh, some traditions even say that uh, the 144,000 in Revelation 17, or 7 is a reference to the, the number of babies that were killed in Bethlehem and in the micro-communities around it. Um, that is ridiculous. Uh, there's not 100,000 people in Jerusalem, which is the largest city in uh, the area. Uh, there's, there's not even 40, there wasn't even 44,000 people uh, probably in Jerusalem at that time. And, uh, so it's very strange, uh, some of these uh, traditions that people come up with. Reasonable, reasonable scholarship based upon the historical facts of about Bethlehem, uh, we're pushing it just to say that there were 20 babies. Uh, that's a high number. Uh, that sounds a lot different than what maybe some of you have heard. But you can't get uh, tens of thousands of babies out of Bethlehem. Uh, maybe out of Calvary Chapel Centralia, but <laughs> not Bethlehem. Okay. Now, I think either extreme ignorance uh, or extreme hyperbole, uh, exaggerating the numbers, I don't think any of that's excusable. I really don't believe that. Uh, it's just strange. Christians, I believe, should be the most reasonable people on the planet, not the most gullible. We should be doing our research. And uh, so, now, of course, both the crime and the tragedy exist, whether there were 10,000 or there were 10. Amen? Same, same tragedy. Now, on the opposite extreme of this view, there's those who actually dispute the veracity of the story because to them, it's, it's unthinkable. You know, it's this, this story is just unbelievable. 
Really? Unthinkable things have never happened in the history of the world? It's strange. So I just said that uh, Christians should be the most reasonable people in the world, so let's, let's be reasonable for a moment here. When you look at the history of Herod's life, and when you look at his behavior, the way that he ruled in Israel, there is absolutely zero difficulty in reconciling the events with this particular person. And let me give you some of the details. Uh, to secure his throne in Israel, uh, to, to sustain his kingdom there, the 34 years that he reigned was marked with bloodshed. Marked with bloodshed. Um, he had hundreds, hundreds of people executed uh, for the reason being that he was power-hungry, he was paranoid, he was insecure, uh, he was suspicious of just about everyone, especially if they were liked or spoken well of. And as you probably know, paranoid people don't sleep well, which makes them more crazy. And paranoid people don't eat well, okay? And neither do they drink their wine without anxiety. They don't. Not at this time, okay? It wasn't uncommon for people during this time uh, to be poisoned uh, through their food, through their wine, uh, due to some conspiracy. And people were potentially, but maybe not, conspiring against Herod. If you asked Herod, everybody was conspiring against him. Okay? He trusted no one, and if you crossed him, or if he thought you crossed him, uh, you would probably not wake up the next day. To establish his authority in Israel, he began by punishing the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the people, because they did not recognize his authority being Idumean rather than Jewish. Okay? Among the, the influential aristocracy, he murdered 45 men, uh, among the most prominent in Judea. He confiscated their property. He acquired their wealth. Uh, the final measure to establish his throne was to reduce the males in the Hasmonean family. Uh, this family from the latter period of the Maccabean era had gained control of the priesthood, and then they became the ruling class in Israel. Okay, this particular family was a headache to Herod, now, even though uh, he strategically married into it so that he could gain favor with the Hasmoneans. Uh, it didn't work. Okay? Uh, through a series of events, a Hasmonean boy of 17 years old, and this is pretty crazy, his name was Aristobulus by name, he was made high priest in Israel at the age of 17, uh, rather than, uh, instead of Herod's choice, among the sons of Zadok. Now, the sons of Zadok were uh, formerly uh, the ones that were the priestly class and had rights to the priesthood. Uh, after Aristobulus had come to the high priesthood, he gained popularity among the people very quickly. The people really liked this young man, which was bad for Aristobulus. Okay? An opportunity arose following the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And after the feast, Herod was invited to Jericho by the matriarch of the Hasmonean family, Alexandra. It was a hot day, so Herod suggested that everybody go swimming, and Aristobulus joined them. And during a rough game of water polo, Aristobulus was drowned, conveniently. And it turned out later that uh, Herod had bribed people to drown this young, man, this young man. But even after this, the Hasmoneans had their grip on Israel, and so through various means, Herod eventually executed every male that could challenge the throne, his throne. Okay. Uh, most of them were simply dispatched, though, for just speaking ill of Herod. Uh, other so-called rivals were falsely accused of treason 
and insurrection so that he could publicly and legally execute them. Through bribery, through cunning and jealousy, he murdered his mother-in-law, his wife, one of ten. I mean, he had some to spare, apparently. And listen, three of his boys, three of his sons. On his deathbed, he ordered all of the prominent Jews and all of Israel to be detained in the Hippodrome in Jericho. And at the moment of his death, they were to be executed. Why? Because he was afraid that if he died, the people would rejoice. So he was going to have these men killed to ensure that Israel mourned a massacre. Now, it's necessary to say that as soon as he died, his sister, who had much power in Israel, she released all of the men. So it never happened. But it was in his heart to kill all of those people. And just shortly before his death, he received permission from Rome to execute his son Antipater, which he did immediately. Immediately. He had to see it before his own death. He was deathly ill. Now, in these last few years of Herod's life, as he grew frail and sicker and sicker, he became even more intensely morbid and deranged. His insecurities drove him mad. His suspicions of people haunted him. And he was ever intoxicated with power. He was eager for revenge. Hence, he had his son executed just before his death. He was always anxious of conspiracy. He had messy foreign affairs. He had domestic troubles, distrust among family. He, he didn't trust anybody that ruled with him. And it was in the midst of all this that these mysterious men from the east came to the capital looking for, to him, a rival king, a king of the Jews, that they intended to worship. And their quest was so impactful that all of Jerusalem and Herod were troubled. Something that Herod could never tolerate was a rival king, especially one that would be recognized by the Jews as the Messiah. If they embraced this baby as the long-awaited Messiah, he would lose all control of Israel. Herod became a desperate man. So is it possible that Herod could kill babies to maintain his power? There is no doubt. It was no big thing to this man, just as it wasn't for other non-Jewish peoples of that time, just as it is not in America. Babies are disposable to the ungodly. So Herod murdered those babies to evade insurrection, the downfall of his kingdom and his pride. So I hope that's convincing enough that not only could it happen, but it most definitely did. Verse 17 through 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. This prophecy is from Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Now, the context of all this is very interesting, and I think it plays very symbolically into all that's happening now. In, in, in Jeremiah 31, verse 15, uh, where it mentions Rachel, she's actually been dead uh, for like 1,300 years by the time Jeremiah, Jeremiah wrote. Okay? And she's probably referenced as a symbol for the mother of Israel, where she is heard weeping over the loss of her children, of course, of her descendants. All right? Her cry, it says, is heard from Ramah. Ramah. Ramah is about five miles north of Jerusalem, And what is interesting about Ramah is that it sits on the ancient border that separated the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom. 
That's interesting because in a, in a very in real sense, it was Rama that kind of, at that time of division, represented both kingdoms, both kingdoms. Now, in Jeremiah 31 itself, the whole chapter, it, it, it goes back and forth with its discussion about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But then it addresses them as far as what God will do as a whole for all of them. But what it's doing is, is, is Jeremiah, in, in the prophecies, he's addressing the, the, the battle from the Assyrians on the north that then dispersed the northern tribes all over the place. And then also he addresses the invasion of Babylon, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, and then the deportation of the tribes of, of the southern kingdom. Now, what is interesting about Rama in the context of all this is that Rama became the, the place where those that had been conquered were detained. And from there, they were then led into captivity into Babylon. And so it says, as symbolically, as Rachel is observing all of this in Rama, she's weeping. Some of her babies, her descendants, have been murdered by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians. Okay? And the other ones will be deported, and they'll never be seen again. And what, what Matthew is saying, that again, just as her descendants were murdered, slaughtered, deported, and vanished, it's happening again here in this sense, that her babies. And see, we would say, and just as Rachel could be heard, as it were, at that time, she could be heard again, weeping with these mothers as they held their babies, refusing to be comforted. So the, the prophecy is fulfilled in its absolute sense, is what Matthew is saying, in the tragedy of Bethlehem. Now, in all of this darkness, there's something very remarkable about where Jeremiah 31, verse 15, how it's couched in all of this other uh, prophetic language. Um, it's all of it's surrounded by hope. It has everything to do with Messiah. In, in Jeremiah 31, God repeats the land promise in verse 4 through 14, that Israel will be brought back to its own land. And, and it's very specific. It says the families of Israel. It re repeats the promise to redeem ethnic Israel in verse 1. And then, it, this is the great chapter that promises the new covenant, which is ratified by the blood of Christ. That's verses 31 through 33 of Jeremiah 31. And then also, it reveals what the world will be like when Christ returns and rules over it, verse 34 through chapter 40. So, stuck right in the middle of all of these hopes is that tragedy. And Jeremiah is saying, and actually God is saying in the text, I need you to look beyond the tragedy to all of the hope that I will bring to Israel, to the world, and all of that. Okay? So we see it in Jeremiah. We see it in the Gospels. In the midst of tragedy, God pronounces hope. In Bethlehem, of course, there was much pain, but the Messiah just evaded death, and he'll return, and he'll save his people from their sin. Verse 19 through 20. Now when Herod was dead, there's celebration in parentheses there, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. It's time to come home. Herod the maniac is gone. Herod died in, um, in 4 BC, uh, and it was indeed it was a great relief to the, the Jews. But the problem is, is that the death of one tyrant does not guarantee that the next guy will not be nuts. Okay? There's no guarantee. 
so real quick question. How long was Jesus in Egypt? Now, this is not an easy thing to solve simply because we don't know the precise year that Jesus was born. I know some people have it fixed in their mind, but when we take all of the dates from the Gospel of Luke, and we take them from Matthew, we take them from the historian Josephus, uh, we don't come up with the date that you would think. Uh, some scholars believe that, many scholars believe that Jesus was actually born in 5 BC. Does that mess with you at all? Yeah, okay. Yeah, most believe that it was before our date started counting up instead of counting down. Uh, I know it, it kind of messes with our understanding of BC and AD, uh, especially saying that 5 BC would not be before Christ, but would actually be Anno Domini, uh, AD, okay? Not to be confused with after death. I grew up thinking AD was after death because uh, my Latin was terrible. And uh, <laughs> Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, yeah. And so 32 AD would not be the year that Jesus turned 32, okay? Uh, sorry for that. It's just the way things are. Anyway, uh, what we do know is that Jesus was certainly a little boy uh, by the time they returned to the land of Israel. Um, so they're headed home. And things are not necessarily better. So they rose, he rose, took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. Understand, crazy people in the household of Herod were a dime a dozen, okay? Archelaus was no exception. How so? Just real quick, before Herod died, uh, he had blasphemously installed a massive golden eagle uh, on the gates of the temple, okay? And it was a symbol of Rome, and it was put there to appease the Romans, to honor them. But the Jews couldn't stand that image being there where it was. So two prominent rabbis had encouraged some of their students to take down the eagle and then destroy it. And so they took it down, and as they were hacking it up with their axes, because it was gold, uh, they were arrested and uh, they were tried. But instead of punishing the students, Herod had the two rabbis executed. Okay? Shortly after his death, uh, he left the throne to Junior, uh, things were fairly calm until the Passover meal. And the people began to revolt in Jerusalem because of their beloved rabbis. So Archelaus decided to establish his authority in the same spirit of his father, and he had 3,000 Jews murdered in Jerusalem. The crazy thing is, is that many of them were pilgrims. They had nothing to do with any of the stuff that was really going on. So it wasn't much of a Passover feast that year. The good thing is, is that because of the, the degree and, and how much cruelty Archelaus imposed on the people of Israel, uh, delegations of the Jews were sent to the emperor. And they were so effective that they called Archelaus to Rome to face trial. And at that trial, he was deprived of his throne and he was exiled to Gaul. Good place for him. And then in his place, Rome installed governors in Judea to ensure that there was peace in the territory and to ensure that Israel was uh, paying their taxes. And who's the famous governor that we know? Pilate, the one who actually condemned Christ to death. So Judea at least was relieved of Herod and his children. But when Joseph returned to Judea with Mary and Jesus, um, they had to 
evade there. And it says they went into the region of Galilee. Now, the region of Galilee is not to be confused with the Sea of Galilee itself. So I was going to point at that map, but it's not going to show up over here. So you see, uh, this is, this, what color is that? Off yellow? Okay, that's the, that's, that's the territory, the province of Galilee. And then, of course, this is the, the Sea of Galilee. This is the Jordan River. Can you guys see that little guy? Okay, so I'm going to test your geography. What's the body of water down here? That was easy. What's the elevation? I think it's 1,300 feet below sea level. The Sea of Galilee is seven, almost 800 feet below sea level. So this puppy right here moves real slow, typically. Yeah. The Sea of Galilee is a stunning place. They grow every tropical fruit you can imagine down there. And they do it in Israel. It's very strange. You can get papaya, you can get guava. It's just really, it's a strange place, but it's beautiful. So, um, now, the, um, the, the Via Maris, now when, when, so Egypt is clear down here, of course, uh, the Via Maris is a highway that goes this way, and then it goes into the Galilee. That's probably the route that Joseph went. If they went any other way, um, it would have been a lot more difficult, different languages and everything else, but if they went up the seacoast there, um, it would be Jews. And it says, and he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, plural, he shall be called a Nazarene. So where is Nazareth? Real quick, it's right there. It's right there. How many guys have been to Nazareth? Yeah, not very impressive. Not a very impressive town. It's about 14 miles west of the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee, uh, about 66 miles north of Jerusalem. It was elevated on a hill. Okay, you come to the edge of the hill, and you can start looking down on the Sea of Galilee, due west of Mount Tabor. Um, now, because of our text, um, the prophetic text itself, that, or texts, rather, that Matthew is referring to, we have to kind of uh, examine what we might call the Jewish perception of those who lived in Nazareth. Okay? Uh, let's begin with the perception of man in whom Jesus said there is no guile. I think we can trust his his perspective. Jesus said, there's no guile, there's no deceit in this man. The story goes like this. After Jesus had called Philip to follow him, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And how did Nathanael respond to the news of the Messiah coming from Nazareth? <laughs> Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Philip said, you're just going to have to come and see. Okay? The rest of the story goes like this. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, look, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to them, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So much for perception. He's come to reality. Amen? Yeah. So apparently one good thing could come out of Nazareth. Let's look at our text again. It says, And he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He, the Messiah, shall be called a Nazarene. Nazarene. That it might be fulfilled. Now, some people have thought 
that what is meant here is that Jesus would be a Nazarite, a Nazarite, okay, from Numbers chapter 6, one of those men that go to the temple, they make a specific oath, they avoid certain things for a certain amount of time, and on it goes. Uh, is that what the text says? Does it say Nazarite? No, it says Nazarene, okay, Nazarene. Now, there is no prophecy, though, in the Old Testament that used the word Nazarene. In fact, the word Nazarene isn't even in the Old Testament. Okay, there's no reference to the city at all. And they would not have used the word because that's not what is meant here by it when Matthew uses it. Also, it says that it was, this was spoken by the prophets, plural. It wasn't a, a single prophet. And the phrase itself is not a quotation from any particular Old Testament prophecy. It's not a quotation. The prophet said that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. That is, he would be thought of or considered to be a Nazarene. Let me explain. The use of the word Nazarene is idiomatic, as Nathaniel indicates in his response to Jesus coming from Nazareth. There was ideas that came with it. You get it? Can anything... What? From Nazareth? You must be mistaken. A Nazarene was someone of little repute, probably poor, okay, certainly insignificant, definitely uneducated. They were of low esteem, at least in perception. Whatever someone's opinion was of a Nazarene in the first century, it wasn't good. So when the prophets said that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene, it doesn't mean that they would use the term. They were saying that people would have this perception of him. What happened? What did you guys do to my stuff? See how quickly I blamed the, the guys. The day is coming when we don't need technology. Wouldn't that be nice? Okay. You're cheating by seeing those prophecies in advance. <laughs> uh, it, now, I, they, I don't hear this very much anymore, but maybe the young people aren't familiar with this idiom, but uh, when we say they're from the other side of the tracks. Do our young people know that? Raise your hand if you've heard that. Okay. Some of the younger people are just lying. Like, I, I've heard it. I've heard it. <laughs> All the old people are like, I'm young. I'm young. <laughs> yeah. It didn't define who Jesus was, but it's how other people defined him because of where he came from. Now, when we turn to the Old Testament, we should expect to find prophets telling us that Messiah will be regarded lowly, okay, lowly, at least in his first coming. So I want to try some unforcise here. When prophesying about the Messiah, David recorded the words of the Messiah, his experience, saying this, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me, they shoot out the lip, they shake the head. Reproach, despised by the people, ridiculed, they shake their head at me. Isaiah continues this image of Messiah. God actually does. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation, that's Israel, abhors. So, the Messiah is described as coming from humble beginnings, but then rising to a place where, in the rest of the text, kings stand in his presence and princes worship him. Very interesting. He begins in a humble and lowly position, but God will exalt him. God will exalt him. In fact, the text says that not only will he save the remnant of Israel, he'll bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. At his first coming, he will be despised and he will be abhorred by his nation. That's interesting because John tells us that when Jesus came to his own people, his own people did not receive him. Okay, they rejected him. Again, Isaiah prophesies, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. 
He has no form or comeliness. That's, he has no splendor, no dignity. And when we see him, when we look at him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. By all appearances, this Messiah would be totally insignificant. He would be undesirable. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid it, we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Lowly esteem. So if we were to use a first century idiom to describe him, we would say he was a Nazarene. He was lowly esteemed. He couldn't be what people are saying about him. He certainly couldn't be uh, what the prophets said about him because they said, Remember, the first century Jew set aside all of those prophecies, and they focused all of their attention on this political kind of king, warrior figure. So how unflattering it was for Jesus to go about all of Israel doing ministry, being known as Jesus of Nazareth. Nothing perhaps sounded so contradictory, unbelievable, than the Son of God, the Son of David, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Savior of the world, being a Nazarene. But perception is not to be confused with reality. So let me close with this statement. I don't know what your current perception of Christ is, but I hope that by the help of the Holy Spirit that you will have great, or greater clarity in your vision of him as we go through Matthew's account. It will be proven that our vision of Christ is obscured until we find ourselves worshiping him, exalting the authority of his word, obeying him. If that's not what your vision of Christ does for you, now, I hope that you come to that, realizing that he is your creator. He is the God of the universe, as we said before. He is God Almighty. That he is to be worshipped. He's worthy of it. Beyond his less than impressive appearance, beyond his place of residence, is one whom the Father says, I will cause every knee to bow. I'll cause every tongue to confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll pray. Chapter 3. John the Baptist, boy, that guy could dress and his diet, man, let's pray and then we'll worship. Father, we love you, and uh, Lord, just the interesting ways that you have decided to do things in history, so unexpected, so unlike the way that we would do. Even Jesus said, come to me, for I am lowly. It's not to be confused with him not being mighty, it's not being exalted. And so, Lord, I, I do pray that our vision of you would have greater clarity as we go through this, and that everything that we can possibly know about you would really dawn upon us, Lord, and that it would have great impact on our thinking, our behavior, our lives, Lord, that it would make us better worshipers. Lord, help us, I pray. And I pray that as we get through all of these historical facts, the details, Lord, that when we get to your teaching, that your authority would, would just impress upon us, Lord, and that we could learn from you. So, Lord, we just love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Lord bless you guys.